Okay. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. And like Psalm 105, 106, Nehemiah 9, it tells the story of Israel's history. Uh, Not all of it because it's going to stop at David and the choice of Jerusalem. But it tells the story in essence and we see the two main characters of that story. God and man. And it emphasizes the loving kindness, the goodness, the mercy of God in contrast to the sinfulness and wickedness of man. And this contrast runs through the psalm. I I, I call verses 40 through 55 God's goodness. But that's not completely all of it because the first few of those verses emphasize Israel's sinfulness. I mean, so so these things are constantly being intertwined throughout the fabric of Psalm 78. God's loving kindness and God's goodness to His people with the people's sinfulness against Him. And one of the things we pointed out last time is that to some degree... Verses 1 through 8 was an introduction calling on parents to teach their children the ways of God. But this section about God's goodness, I'm not going to write out the names of it, but in 78 verses 9 through 16, you see that same emphasis. Israel's rebellion in 78 verses 17 through about verse 20. And then a God is abandons them is the way I expressed it here, but it's an expression of God's wrath in 78 verses 21 through 32. And then God's undeserved mercy to the people particularly emphasized in verses 33 through 39. And so there's some degree two parallel parts of Psalm 78. But it is also true that there is overlap in these sections. Uh, In verses 9 through 16, the Bible talks about God's power and God's wonders shown in the land of Egypt, which is exactly what's going to be emphasized in verses 40 through 55. But Let's go ahead and begin looking at verse 40. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. Now he's going to deal with the plagues. He's going to mention seven of the plagues. I believe seven. He turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. 
He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to the bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury, and indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. But he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so they did not fear, but a sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to his hill country, which his right hand had gained. So he drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Now, I want you to remember how we close last time. In verse 39, verse 38 and 39, but he, speaking of God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity, did not destroy them, and often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. That is perhaps the high point of the psalm in emphasizing to us God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God not arousing His wrath. The word remember, a key word in the psalm, God remembered that they were but flesh and showed them mercy. And yet, again, God's goodness is set against the backdrop of Israel's sin and Israel's wickedness. Notice in verse 40 that in the New American Standard, the text begins with how often. The text in verse 41 begins with the words again and again. But my point, this shows us they didn't just fall into one sin. They were persistent and they were determined to sin against God. How often they rebelled. And again and again, they tempted God. Now, one of the main words to emphasize the sin of the people is to say that they rebelled. They rebelled against God. And remember the stubborn and rebellious son that didn't obey his parents? In Deuteronomy 21, we invoked that last time. But this term is used in verse 7, or verse 8, excuse me, in verse 17. It's used in verse 40, and it will be used again in verse 56. So they rebelled against God. Rebellion sounds worse to me than sin, doesn't it? It seems like it's a particularly strong term. And maybe because that's we've minimized sin and we've downplayed sin. But rebellion shows us a spirit. You can sin not meaning to sin. Wanting to, you can do the wrong thing, wanting to do the right thing. You don't do the right thing when your intention is rebellion. And again and again, verse 41 says they tempted God. And that term 
was used in verse 18. It's used here in 41, and it will be used again in verse 56. They tempted God. This is the phrase that is used or the word that is used when the Bible tells us um, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22 that Israel tested God ten times in the wilderness. They did it over and over again. Again, the text says again and again they tempted God. Now, how does all of this sin affect God? Look at verse 40. It says they grieved him. Verse 40 says they grieved him in the desert. And verse 41 they pained him. Sin grieves God. Sin pains God. Now this particular word for grieve is used in Genesis 6 in verse 6. And this is talking about man's wickedness was great in the earth and every thought and imagination of his heart was only evil all the time. And it grieved God. That he made man. It grieved God that he made man. And how does God grieve when he sees these innocent school shootings of people that he has watched grow every step of the way? How does he grieve? Oh, he's angered by sin and he is broken at sin as well. Isaiah 30, or excuse me, Isaiah 63 verse 10. Isaiah 63 verse 10 talks about grieving God's Spirit. It uses the same word used here and used in Genesis 6 and verse 6 about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. That may be picked up on when the Bible calls us in Ephesians 4 and verse 30 not to grieve the Holy Spirit. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. And again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Now, the term Holy One of Israel, we probably said this before. Generally, when you encounter that phrase in the Old Testament, you are looking at what book? Isaiah. You're looking at the book of Isaiah. I think it's used 25 times in the book of Isaiah and only six times outside of Isaiah. It was used in Psalms before um, in Psalm 71, 22. It's the only time it's been used previously. It'll be used one time later in Psalms. But here they pained the Holy One of Israel. The fact that God is holy indicates that He is separate from man as a sinner. And again, the background, the contrast between Israel's persistent rebellion and sin and God's utter holiness shines boldly. In verse 42, they did not remember His power. Do you remember what we said in verse 39 just a moment ago? 
God remembered they were but flesh. God remembered Israel's weakness, but Israel doesn't remember God's power, God's demonstrations of power. They did not remember His power. Do you remember um, when we were in Psalm 77 and the writer was afraid in Psalm 77 that God had forgotten them. And verse 9, Psalm 77 verse 9, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has He in anger withdrawn His compassion? Well, the answer to that within the context of the psalm and within this psalm is no. God has not forgotten to be gracious. But His people have sure forgotten Him. The question is asked in Jeremiah 2, verse 32, Can a bride forget her ornaments or a maid her attire? I mean, how many times do you see a woman show up at a wedding and say, Oh, I forgot I was getting married today. No, don't hear you. But, uses that illustration. Can a bride forget her ornaments? Can a maid forget her attire? But my people have forgotten me days without number. I was just uh, talking to some at, at a funeral and there were a lot of preachers in the Spear or Diesel Camp family or Diesel Camp family. <clears throat> we have representatives from both sides in the church so I to pronounce it right. But um, anyway, um, one was talking about living in Canada, and I was talking about that and uh, what kind of obstacles that presents. And he he said that it's just he said the thing about it he says it's not that they feel uh, oppression from the government at this point, but he said. It is so much more secular. I mean, it's just, it's hard to find religious stations. It's hard to find people in conversations about religion. It's, it's hard to, it's just hard to find that. And, and, and I'll tell you, it's just our country and are just losing all sight of God. We're forgetting who He is. Even if He's not being mocked and blasphemed, He is forgotten often. And this is what happens to Israel. And and they've forgotten Him. They've forgotten how He redeemed them. And it said, The Lord performed these signs in Egypt and marvels in Zoan. Okay, let's talk about these plagues. What do you notice about the plagues that He mentions here? In verses 44 through 51. He doesn't mention all of them. That's one thing that uh, stands out. But what else does it stands out? I thought it was interesting. I never thought about the frogs destroying. But, yes. I mean, I mean, you look at a frog, it's just a, an innocent, cute little thing that pops around. It's not like it's got fangs or virus. <laughs> And a frog does not strike fear in me. Uh, and uh, so it's not a terrifying creature. I know uh, there are people that are afraid of everything, but, but, but that doesn't, that's not a disturbing creature to me. Uh, but you, what you're saying is right, Gary. 
but one of the things I was particularly hitting at is it doesn't even mention these plagues in the exact same order that we encountered them in the book of Exodus. Now, people who don't have a high view of inspiration will say, oh, uh, he's drawing from a different tradition that had the plagues uh, in a different order. No, no, I, I think it's a poetic work and he is selectively, like he's selectively choosing events from Israel's history. He doesn't even mention Mount Sinai in this whole poem. Does that mean it never happened? No. But, but he selectively chooses plagues which illustrate his point that they show the power of God. They demonstrate his hand. It is also interesting to me that while he is using things that we would call destructive, he is emphasizing God's goodness through it. God's judgment on wicked people is a blessing to his people. God's judgment on the rebellious Egypt was a blessing to his people Israel. And the first plague, he turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. So he turns their rivers to blood. By turning the Nile to blood, the Lord turned the river from being a giver of life to the realm of death. Change your rivers to blood. Then he sent swarms of flies. One other, Psalm 105 is going to mention a lot of these plagues as well. And Psalm 105, 31 is going to mention this, this plague of the flies. And it says they devoured them. Uh, it, says, it says the uh, flies devoured them. That is specifically uh, the word devoured in verse 45 is the word for eight. Uh, and then it says that the frog devastated them. And, and, and like Gary said earlier, I don't think about the frog being a creature that brings devastation. We don't read, when we're reading uh, the book of Exodus, much about the impact of the plague of frogs, except the frogs were everywhere and they smelled bad. And that's what we, but here we find they actually did some damage as well. They destroyed them. He gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor uh, to the locust. And grasshopper and locust are used interchangeably in reference to the same uh, to the same creature just at different stages of development. But a, a locust uh, a locust plague could be devastating to crops. In verse, in verse 47, he destroyed their vines with hailstones, their sycamore trees with frost. Some of your translations may have sleet. There, do any of your translations have sleet? This word is only used here in the Old Testament. So how it should be translated is a little bit of guesswork, but we don't even see sleet or frost being part of that plague in the book of Exodus. I think this provides us with additional information and shows us that However, this word should be translated. This was part of the plague, but it seems to be used in parallelism 
with the hailstones. Uh, And in verse 48, he gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. Now, you remember when God sent the plague of hail. And it's hard for me sometimes to say that correctly. Um, But when he sent that plague... Moses gave this warning. Verse 19, Exodus 9. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. And we read this afterwards, the next two verses. Verses 20 and 21. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So there's a distinction even in the Egyptians. Some of them fear the word of the Lord. Some of them, when Moses gives this warning, they bring all their livestock and all their servants inside so that they would not be harmed. Others leave their livestock and servants in the field and they are killed by this. And this is what verse 48 is referring to. He gave their herds to bolts of lightning. Many lost their livestock in this plague of hell that God sent upon them. In verses 49 through 51, these all deal with the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, which was a particularly devastating plague to the land of Egypt. This is the point at which Pharaoh says, all of you need to go, get out. Uh, And this plague affected the people from highest to lowest. You remember we've used the term merism. Merism is a way to show two extremes, to emphasize these two extremes are affected and everything in between is affected. Listen to this. This is a classic example of a merism. Exodus 11 verse 5. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. You hear that, Maryism? Firstborn of Pharaoh on the throne, the highest. The firstborn of the slave girl who's at the millstone, the lowest. Same kind of distinction is made. The wording's a little different. In Exodus 12, 29, it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. All the firstborn died. So again, this affected all the people from the highest to the lowest. Now, sometimes when I stayed... I heard this or that when I was being taught when I was young. Um, It's not universal. I'm interested to see if this was the case with you. But I heard some people state this pretty directly and dramatically. um, That in Exodus, the Lord says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That Exodus doesn't say anything about a death angel. Exodus says, 
when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Did, did others hear? Yeah. Some of you shake. Okay. You don't read that in Exodus. But you do read that in Psalm, 49, Psalm 78, 49. Psalm 78, 49 does talk about God sending a band of destroying angels in this particular plague. And this is in connection with this plague of the death of the firstborn. Now obviously God is ultimately in control of all of it. But did God sometimes use angels to execute judgment? Yes. A couple of other examples of it. You remember in 2 Samuel 24, 16, David sees the angel with the sickle or sword in its hand. I think it's a sickle uh, in 2 Samuel 24, 16. Then in 2 Kings 19, 35, God sends an angel that kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. 2 Kings 19, verse 35. And Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 7, talks about God sending angels for the purpose of destruction. So God did use angels as pictures of, of judgment. But in verse 49, uh, he sent upon them his burning anger, his fury and indignation and trouble. Verse 38 said God restrained his anger, did not arouse all his wrath against Israel. But God does not restrain his anger and God does not withhold his wrath from these Egyptians who have so oppressed his people. He pours it out on them so that all their firstborn are dead. Now, we may not think of those things, and particularly the death of the firstborn, as a demonstration of the goodness of God. But for a people suffering under slavery and oppression, that was a demonstration of God's goodness. In verse 52, he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock, God is revealed to us here as a shepherd. Look at Psalm 77 verse 20. Psalm 77 verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just like God led his people like a flock. Psalm 78 52. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Um, in Psalm 80 verse 1 oh give ear shepherd of Israel you who led Joseph like a flock in verse 53 he led them safely so they did not fear and the sea engulfed their enemies so the enemies were killed as God and his God saved his people and delivered them from the sea and in verse 54 uh, God's right hand gained the um, hill country. And in verse 55, it drove out the nations from before them. God drove out the Canaanites. He drove them out. He gave the promised land to his people. What 
more should I have said? Or what other questions did you all have about this? David? Well, talking about you know God's anger being poured out on them. Uh, he had sent so many plagues that had been ignored, especially by Pharaoh. Yes. Because, you know, the Exodus account, you know, toward, getting toward the end, some of Pharaoh's <laughs> own people and advisors is like, boy, why don't you listen? You know, yeah. we're up, you know, your whole kingdom's being destroyed. Yeah, I know it. And, and so I think especially his anger was against Pharaoh, mm-hmm. uh, because he was so stubborn. <clears throat> yes, and his people suffered. He and, did too, but his people also suffered. Yes, that's right. He, he will suffer. His people will suffer, and um, but there is a clear distinction. I think that verse that we read is the first time you see about Exodus nine. In, in, uh, in dealing with the plague of hell, I think it's the first time you see that clear distinction between some in Egypt who have some respect for God and His Word, and others who have none. And you know, how much is it going to take for you to have? And as as David mentions, they come and they say the whole land of Egypt's devastated in chapter ten. When are you going to let this man go? How long is he going to be a snare to us? By the way, these are the plagues that were omitted. Plague on the livestock, the fifth plague. Then the sixth plague, the magicians particularly were affected by this plague. What was it? Boils. Okay, darkness is overlooked, but boils are the way the magicians were affected. The magicians were affected by boils. They weren't able to stand before Pharaoh. And darkness is also uh, plague, not magician. What's life? It depends on how, yes. Some list the, that third plague as gnats or mosquitoes, um, and uh, so that's right. It may be. I, it, it is hard sometimes too to tell the distinction between that third plague and that fourth plague that comes because it's translated lice in the King James. It's translated gnats or mosquitoes in um, in. Um, the New American Standard, some other translation. Mosquito does, I have to admit, <laughs> sound too newfangled. You know, it's too newfangled interpretation. But um, but a lot of those words are only used once. But some people group that with that fourth plague, John, where you have those swarms of insects. And, and I don't know if, if he is meaning verse Four. If he is meaning in verse 45 that swarms of flies to refer to the fourth plague, then that's right. And that plague isn't mentioned. Uh, if, that, if that swarms of, of creatures is meant to encompass both, um, I, I, I don't know. So it would be six or seven plagues depending on how you count them. But, um, but how are the people going to respond? You, you're a slave... And somebody frees you. How do you respond? Gratitude. That should be the response, you would think, but not quite. Verse 56, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep His testimony. Just like 
they had done before, they do again. They are rebelling against God. They are tempting. We, we might think, okay, they've come into the land. Now they're settled. Now they're not traveling to the wilderness anymore. And they're going to be faithful. No. In verse 57, they turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. They provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. Now, I want you to notice this. The sin itself has kind of changed some. Uh, it, it, is ingrat- it still is ingratitude. But it takes a different form. When they were going throughout the wilderness, they were constantly complaining, they were constantly murmuring. They become settled in the land and the focus becomes the sin of idolatry. That becomes the main focus. And in a lot of ways, idolatry is the sin of the Old Testament. And in some ways, it is the most serious Of all sins. Because if your object of worship is not right, nothing else is going to be right. Nothing else is going to be right. And God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make a graven image. And this invokes the language of some of these passages in uh, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, those first two commandments, where they provoked him with their high places, they aroused his jealousy with their graven images. And so, once again, we're going to see God pour out his wrath and anger. Just like he poured out his anger and wrath in verses 21 through 32, he's going to do that again in verse 59. Now, verse 59, when God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. That's the same response in verse 21. When the Lord heard and was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob and also an anger also mounted against Israel. But now God heard and God is filled with wrath. Now, one writer made a point that I thought was very interesting. He pointed out that the people are worshiping at the high places and worshiping their graven images in verse 58. But the text says in 59, when God heard. In a sense... The only one who really heard their prayer and their worship to these lifeless gods was the very God they were provoking and making jealous. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? When God heard, he was filled with wrath. And it uses a bold expression that God abhorred Israel. And we know in the big picture... God doesn't hate these people and God is not abandoning them forever. But in the short term, He abhorred Israel. He abandoned His dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which He had pitched for them. Now Shiloh, in verse 60, mentioned here, was the religious center when we get to 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4 in particular. 1 Samuel 1 through 4. 
And you remember that here was the tabernacle or the tent of God. The actual destruction of Shiloh is not stated in 1 Samuel 1-4. through It's not stated in 1 Samuel 4, but uh, it seems to have happened. Archaeology states it happened around 1100 B.C. Around 1100 B.C. Now, that would be about the time, seems like 1 Samuel 4 is taking place, and while its destruction isn't recorded in the Bible there, it is definitely the case when we come to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, verses 12 through 14, in Jeremiah 26, verses 6 through 9, Jeremiah says God is going to make this house, the temple in Jerusalem, like Shiloh. And for that, they threatened to kill him. He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Now, I want you to notice, this text just talks about God withdrawing from them. And when God withdraws from them, when God gives us up, in the language of Romans 1, when God gives up his people, his people are in a desperate situation, and they can't stand before anyone. In verse 61, he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of an adversary. He delivered his people to the sword. He was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priest fell by the sword and his widows could not weep. Now, I think this is probably all tied with those events in 1 Samuel 1 and 4. You remember that in 1 Samuel 4, when Eli hears that the ark of God had been taken, he falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. And that chapter ends. I think this is the last thing said in the chapter. If it's not, it's close to it. The glory had departed from Israel. The glory of God, particularly tied to the Ark of the Covenant, has been taken by the Philistines. And God gave his he gave up his strength to captivity. He gave up his strength to captivity and his glory to the hand of the adversary. Some in Israel think, how can this happen to us? How could their God defeat our God? Because your God gave you up because of your sin and because of your rebellion. He, in verse 62, delivered his people to the sword. And in verse 64, his priest fell by the sword. Now you remember the priest, Eli's sons, Hophni and Benahaz, there, it's in 1 Samuel 2, in verses. Seven, uh, 12 through 17, we read how wicked they were. That when people brought their sacrifices to God, they acted like bullies. They took what they wanted first, and then they said, You can give them to God. You're supposed to sacrifice to the Lord first. As a priest, they were there to ensure that the people followed God, and they were the ones leading the rebellion to sin. And God gave a sign to Samuel He's going to bring judgment on his house. He said, your two sons, 
Hothbelly and Phinehas are going to die in one day. And they did. They died the same day. And you remember that the wives of one of those two men, I think it's Phinehas, Phineas, his wife was pregnant. And she didn't weep. She's, she's in labor. She gives birth. It seems like she gives birth prematurely because of all the stress of this situation, it seems like. And, and she is dying. And she named him Ichabod. For the glory has departed from Israel. And I think this is the period of time that these verses are particularly focusing on. And they are saying that all of this happened this way because God withdrew from his people and God allowed them to fall by their enemies. He took away all their joy from the young men, from the young women, no wedding songs, uh, none of this. But fire devoured his young men. Another picture, it seems like, of them dying in battle. And often cities were burned in those days. When we get to 1 Samuel chapter 1-4, through 4, as Lord willing we'll do sometime this year in our Bible classes, it's a dark period. Dark period in Israel's history. But you remember when the Philistines looked like they'd taken the ark of God captive and they set it up in the house of their God. If they come in the next day and there's Dagon falling on his face before the ark of the Lord. And the next day, after they put him on his spot again, he falls back down and he loses his hands and loses, loses his hands and his head. Wrong sign language. <laughs> hands and head. Okay. But you get the idea. Uh, and here you see in verse 65, the Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. Now, is there anything said in this psalm about the people's repentance? Nothing at all. Um, let me make a tangent a little bit and let's look in Hosea Hosea I want to make this point in passing because we've got enough from Psalm 78 but I think this illustrates the point so well Hosea 2, verses 2 through 13, doesn't say anything, anything good about Israel. Nothing. As a matter of fact, God has blessed them with bread and water and flax and oil and drink. And yet they attribute these things to other gods and they're going to go after they're lovers. They're going to play the harlot. And they're going to say, I'm going to go after those who give me my bread and my water and my flax and my oil and my drink. I'm going to give them that. 
And God says in verse 8, She does not know it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. God has blessed her with everything and she has kept on serving Baal. Now, if you want to challenge me on this by going home and reading this, please do. Please do. But what you're going to find in Hosea 2, 2-13 is there is not a good word said about Israel. And then we come to verse 14 and verse 14 says, Therefore, ooh, write that point, I expect the hammer to drop. Because all he has done is talked about their sin And now in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. In spite of all of Israel's sins, in spite of all their rebellion, in spite of their idolatry, in spite of them running after other gods, God is going to initiate a new honeymoon period. With Israel. What I'm trying to say is that the Bible story is not that we're taking such great strides in seeking after God. God is taking great strides in seeking after us. When we have sinned and we have rebelled and we have been rebellious and tempted him and grieved him and pained him, he keeps reaching out to us. (coughs) And that's what you see right here. Now, there is a kind of national revival in 1 Samuel 7. But God has already judged the Philistines before that's taken place. In verse 65, that's about 20 years after these events, the text says. But in verse 65, the Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. Now, is that generally your picture of God? The Lord, it's almost the Lord awakes out of a drunken stupor. I do not need to be disrespectful of God. I'm trying to look at the words of the text and saying that. But what that's saying is from the perspective of Israel. When Israel's enemies defeated them and conquered them, it was almost as if God was asleep at the wheel. And suddenly, He awakes. Now some of your um, translations may have something like a warrior rejoicing from wine. A little bit more positive sounding. But... But God, just because of His mercy and grace, decides to stand up for His people. In verse 66, He drove His adversaries backward. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Now the word choose is going to be a key word here in these last few verses. Word choose. And the text tells us that he did not choose. He did not choose Ephraim. He did not choose Ephraim. Ephraim was mentioned before in this psalm in verse 9. 
And now comes back in verse 67. He did not choose them. But in contrast to that, in verse 68, God chose the tribe of Judah. He chose Judah. He didn't choose Ephraim. He chose Judah. God in the blessings that Jacob pronounces in Genesis 48 excuse me, Genesis 49, verses 8-12, through 12, talks about the scepter shall not depart from Judah. God chose Judah, and the verb chose is not used again uh, in the end of verse 68, but it seems to apply here. God chose Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. God chooses Judah... God chooses Jerusalem. This is the city where God has chosen to put His name. That is stated in 1 Kings, among other places. 1 Kings 11, verse 13, verse 32, verse 36. God has chosen Jerusalem. And here the text says, He, Mount Zion, which He loved. It is stated in verse 60 that God abhorred, or verse 59, that God abhorred His people, but now God loves Zion. And in verse 69, God built His sanctuary like the heights and like the earth which He chose forever. In verse 70, He also chose David, His servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. God did not choose Ephraim. God chose Judah. God chose Mount Zion. And now, God God chooses David. No mention of Saul here. But God chose David. God chose David. The choice of Mount Zion, the choice of David, is to have eternal repercussions. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So the word shepherd and shepherded are key in verse 71 and 72. David's work was a shepherd. Now what work better prepares him for being a shepherd of God's people, for being a king, than being a literal shepherd? Have you ever had something in life that you were doing that seemed monotonous, that seemed dull, but you realize later points in your life that through that action, or through that job, or through that responsibility that you had, that you learned responsibilities that served you ways long after that job was over. God prepares that, you know, king preparation. You think about what are you going to do? Sit around the castle? Eat a lot of grapes while everybody else is fanning you? No. King preparation came by being out in the field and caring for the sheep. And David was learning what it was like to be king. Because, remember, this is a normal way that a king was referred to. In 1 Kings 22, 
king is Ahab. Prophet is Micaiah. He said, should I go up to Ramoth Gilead or should I refrain? He said, go up. The Lord will give it into your hand. And I say it like that because there must have been something about the way he said it. He said, how many times do I have to tell you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he says, you want the truth? The truth is, I saw all Israel like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Ahab doesn't need a dream interpreter or prophetic interpreter. Ahab knows what that means right away. He said to Joseph, and he said, look, I told you he always said bad things about me and never said anything good. He knows that means he's going to be killed. He knows that. But the figure of a shepherd was a common picture of a king. And God prepared David for that work. God prepared him for that work by shepherding, by, 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 by letting him shepherd literal sheep. And so young people, particularly young people, when you have a monotonous job and you think it requires things of you that it seems so insignificant, maybe God may be using that to prepare you for something bigger to use those same skills Afterwards, just think about it. I haven't done this yet, but I'll tell you something I think it would be good for you and me to do sometime. Just to go through Psalm 78, and on one side you have God, and on one side you have Israel. And write down everything it says about Israel. And see how sinful and rebellious they are. There's hardly a good thing said about Israel in Psalm 78. And then write down uh, what's said about God. But you can divide what's said about God into a couple of columns too. What is said about his wrath and his anger? And what is said about his compassion and gracious nature? Because there's plenty about both in Psalm 78. And behold the goodness and severity of God, as Romans eleven twenty two says. Now, in just a second, I'm going to ask you the question you're expecting about uh, how does this point to Jesus. I want you to think about this. This psalm, in particular the ending of this psalm we've just looked at, is in the midst of what could be described as the most depressing book of the Psalms. Book 3, Psalm 73 through 89. I don't know when all of these were written or when they were compiled in this order. But you're the next Psalm talks about. The next psalm talks about the destruction of the temple. God chose Mount Zion. He chose Judah. He chose Mount Zion. And in verse 69, He built His sanctuary like the heights and like the earth, which He founded forever. Well, Mount Zion, the temple is always going to be here. But in the next chapter, it was destroyed. In Psalm 74, it was destroyed. So in Psalm 74, we read the destruction of the temple. In Psalm 79, the destruction of the temple. And yet here, these promises. 
Psalm 89, beginning with verse 38 through the verse 52, Psalm 89 deals with the fact that there was apparently no king of David on the throne. And that's the last psalm in this book. There's no king of David on the throne. So the point I'm making, these promises to David that this psalm this psalm emphasizes, the promises of the temple that this psalm emphasizes may not have been true at all when this psalm was written. And if it was true when this psalm was written, it wasn't true when all these were put together like this because Psalm 74 and 79 definitely show the destruction of the temple. In Psalm 89, there is no king from David. But I think that in a certain sense makes the faith of this psalm more impressive. He believed those promises of God to David. He believed the promises about the temple when there was no temple and there was no Davidic king. Now in a certain sense, they were all fulfilled together in Jesus. He is both the descendant of David and the temple. He's both of those. But I tell you, just that fact, think about that a while and think about the faith that calls us to. That he's emphasizing God's choice of David and choice of the temple when neither may seem to be operational at that time. Now, How do you think about this applying to Christ? Well, you stopped in Psalm or in Genesis forty nine ten. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, uh-huh. nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God's presence uh-huh. coming. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a there's almost a, a built-in reference uh, maybe in here looking to the ultimate Shiloh. Oh yeah, I, I think Jesus, yeah, is the ultimate fulfillment um, of that and and the prosperity and and our Lord sprang out of the tribe of Judah, as Hebrews seven fourteen tells us and uh, yes but Genesis 49 God's choice of Judah particularly finds expression in Jesus the ultimate ruler that was to come and as we've already stated his Jesus is the temple <clears throat> where God dwells with man. Destroy this temple, he said, in three days I'll raise it up. John 2, 19-24. John 4, 19-24. When he's in the conversation with the Samaritan woman, it's not in this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you'll worship the Father, but the hour is coming which all who worship Him will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He, David, of course, Jesus is the 
the first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And every reference to Jesus is the Son of David. Um, and Jesus is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. All of these. Um, David, I may have stepped on your... I got, I got excited up here. I got close to my board. I got excited. And I may have uh, eliminated your comment, but you... You look like you had a. You look. I don't know if I actually saw your hand raised, but you look like you're about to raise it. So, what? What? What did you have? Uh, starting with what John said. Okay. And then going to, you know, specifically the shepherd, you know, that we've seen here in a couple of places. So, yeah. 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 So, um. But yes, I appreciate that, and and uh, those are key points. Gary, I was thinking about all the times you mentioned in '78 how unfaithful Israel was, and yet God would get angry with them, but He would still maintain His His love and His promises and be gracious towards them. Which reminds me of what uh, Paul wrote in Romans. 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very good. It's very good. Yeah, I, I want to take... Does anybody else another point? Because I want to pick up on what something Gary said there and kind of make that the last point. If, if anybody else has another thought, feel free to share it real fast. I, I think... What you're saying about to you tie in God's loving kindness and man's sin, and I don't know the best way to say this because this is so much bigger than just like one verse. But do you ever see an event which shows us the grace and mercy and compassion of God and the sinfulness of man, like the cross? I mean, is there any event? Like that, that shows us. And we talked about how in Psalm 78, we read of God's wrath and God's love. Aren't they both displayed in the cross? God's wrath against sin and how ugly and hideous and horrible sin is as you see this perfectly innocent man beaten and bleeding and wearing a crown of thorns dying in this most horrible of ways that shows us how horrible and evil sin is and God's wrath against sin. But it shows us the love of God and the depths with which He would go to save us, to rescue us. But you think about this is the place where man's sins reach their depths of wickedness. Man gets his hand on God, come in a human body, and kills him, murders him. And at the same time, it is the most dramatic demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. No greater love as a man than this, but that he laid down his life for his friends. Some of you have read at one time or another 
you know, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. You know, all of that was to tell the story of the gospel. All that chapters and all that goes on is to end up by picturing Sidney Carton dying in Charles Darnay's play. There was a 19, I think, 35 version of that movie. That I've seen this somewhere on the internet, so I think it's available for everyone and without calls. But a 1935 movie where Sidney Carton is talking about his plans to die for Charles Darnay. And there has been something on the wall, something written on the wall or something above his head that you've seen throughout the movie, but it was never really visible. You couldn't tell what it said. But at this point where he is stating definitely that this is what he will do and these are his plans, you see what's behind his head on the wall. It's a verse written. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. That story was told to give an illustration, a demonstration of something of the picture of Christ dying for us. But Dickens knew that any time that one person gives their life for another, which is the highest form of sacrifice and the deepest form of love, that any time somebody does that, it is a dim imitation of the love of Christ. Gary quoted Romans 5, 6-8. We may die for a good man or a righteous man. Christ died for us when we were not good or righteous or any of that. He demonstrates his love for sinners like us. And so, in a sense, Jesus fulfills every word of Psalm 78. And that he is the gracious God being met by rebellious and stubborn people who crucify him. But it doesn't stop him from demonstrating that he's compassionate and he forgives and he provides salvation. May we all stand in awe. Now, I want to ask you, too. Kind of like Psalm 78. How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to respond to that by how often they rebelled against him? Again and again, they tempted him. They tempted him and rebelled against him and did not keep his testimonies. Or are we going to say... Speak, Lord, for we are listening. That's the question that comes down to us. Are we going to learn by the failures of others? Or are we going to 
follow him and follow him. Not repeat their failures. What else do you have? Anything? Thank you guys for being here. And uh, John, will you lead us in prayer as we close?